Welcome to the Insider Outsider Podcast, where we have courageous conversations with business leaders around the globe about what it means to be an insider or an outsider in their organizations. We at WMFDP and FDP Global specialize in helping insiders understand their unique responsibility to engage other insiders, as well as outsiders, in partnering and building inclusive teams and organizations. I'm your host, Michael Welp, co-founder of the diversity and inclusion leadership development firm WMFDP and FDP Global, also a TEDx presenter and author of the book, Four Days to Change. Welcome to this week's episode of the Insider Outsider Podcast. This week, I have three distinguished guests with me, all from WMFDP. I've got Peggy Nagy, who is a senior consultant with us and also been a trial lawyer for a long time. Janice Murray is also a consultant with us and was vice president of diversity and inclusion for Exelon Corporation recently. And then Bill Proudman, who is also the co-founder of Whiteman and as full diversity partners. We're talking today about the leadership skill, one of our eight critical leadership skills of leveraging ambiguity and turbulence. As we record this, we are actually in the middle of that a lot in, globally because of the, the virus that spread and we just had lockdowns in shelter in place orders in California and New York in the last day. So we're in the middle of a lot of ambiguity and turbulence. Thank you for coming today, for taking time out in this your busy lives. Thank you. My pleasure, Michael. I want to hear a little bit from each of you about how are you personally doing managing, leveraging, and ambiguity and turbulence? What are you learning is about some of your strengths around that or some of the challenges given today's world? What are you learning about your own ability to do that? This is Janice. Michael, I think how I'm doing changes from moment to moment. Sometimes I think I have it all figured out and I've got it kind of all together and then something else happens, which kind of throws me. And when I think about this particular skill about when to take action and not always having everything right before taking action, that is something that I'm really practicing. I'm taking care of some family members and I have to move sometimes when I don't totally feel comfortable doing it. But if I don't, then there's other consequences. So I'm really, I am so into this ambiguity and turbulence right now, just minute by minute. And it's really challenging. I feel a little unmoored. I'm a little off balance. One of the behaviors that we list in, under this skill is I'm acknowledged when I'm confused. And you also talked about, I don't wait to get everything right before taking action. You've just talked about that, not waiting to have it all clear and figured out. And so I appreciate you modeling both of those. Well, Michael, I think for me and Janice, this is Bill, this keys off of something you just said. My metaphor for me is it feels like I'm on a roller coaster. And the thing that's different here is that I cannot see the track in front of me. When I'm on the roller coaster and I can see that, that we're going to get to the top of the hill and it's going to drop precipitously and I know it's coming and it can still feel crazy. That's still happening. I just can't see it. That makes me even more unnerved. And I think for me, and I attribute this to my upbringing and my group identities as a straight American-born white guy, I've grown up in a world, probably because of my privilege and my standing in those groups where I think, I emphasize the word think, I'm in control. I think there's something around this that's somewhat energizing for me around noticing, first of all, that's an illusion when I felt that before. 
And now I'm actually, that's what I do see is that the sense that I'm in control is a myth. And how do I stay present for myself and with my loved ones and with my work colleagues and my neighbors and still feel like I'm not in control here? So it's that it's that great paradox, being present and being in control and then letting go of what the illusion that I somehow was taught to think that I'm supposedly in control. Which is one of the other six behaviors we talk about, which is I lean into discomfort as a way to deepen my learning. You're just sitting there without feeling like, probably like being in control, Bill, I would imagine. So do I. And sitting with the being on a roller coaster ride without any rails, invisible feels, I'm sure, scary. You know, and again, I want to hear from you, Peggy, here in a second. But when you said the word discomfort, Michael, again, talking about, for me, the intersection of this issue and my privilege based on these groups, I'm in a situation where I have the privilege of working from home because I own my company. We're in an industry where working from home, while be it still tough and economically stressful, is still possible. And I'm noticing, as I was today out in the food store, and I watched the guy who was cashing me out as the cashier, one was wearing gloves, the other one wasn't. How many hands are they coming in contact with on a day? And my guess for the hopefully $15 she's making an hour, he doesn't have the option of working from home. So I'm really aware of the privilege, again, that I have, even in this time of great distress and discomfort. And Peggy, what comes up as you hear that? And how are you dealing with all this turbulence? To me, the ambiguity of not having enough test kits, wondering how long it's going to go, and what does it mean? That ambiguity does cause turbulence. For me personally, But it also, the social isolation is interesting. I've kind of self-isolated myself since I got back from London on March the 4th. And I work a lot from home, and so I'm used to doing that. But I realized that I'm used to also going out and facilitating sessions and then coming back to home. And so being by myself with my two cats, it's been interesting to have enough social contact. So the other day I got a call and my neighbor said, I'm outside your door. I have a jar of flowers that I put on your banister and I'm talking to you. And so he brought over flowers for me, which is really nice. So the small things that happen that allow some social contact. I was talking to another client today and she said that she's having virtual coffee chats with people and virtual lunches with people just to keep in contact with each other. And I've read a lot about the trauma, the post-trauma that can be caused from the isolation. So all this may seem trivial as Bill talks about the person who is at the store and can't work from home. So I think we've got the sort of gamut of experiences that we're talking about today. For the last two days in our practice in WMFDP, we've done our first two webinars with some of our clients around how they're dealing with leveraging ambiguity and turbulence. And one of the things I was really struck by, there's a lot of things I was struck by, but the one is that of the 20 people that have been on these two calls, and we've kept it intentionally small so we could have more intimate conversation, I was the only white guy. And now that might be because most of the DNI professionals still in North America are not white or they're not white men, they're women, men and women of color, out gay and lesbian folk. But Peggy, you and Janice, as two women of color, I'm curious about how this experience 
is different for you based on your race and your ethnic identity and what that intersection is that we might talk about across racial lines here? Well, having Trump refer to the coronavirus as the China virus or the foreign virus is, to me, the blatant bias having to tie race with what's going on. And that alone is just infuriating for me to hear that and to not have it be corrected and to have it be part and parcel of having to deal with already the ambiguity and turbulence I'm already having to deal with. To me, that's one thing. I think the other thing is that thinking that some politicians feel that this is overblown, that it's not something to worry about, it's not a health concern, that also is to me, maybe they can isolate in place and maybe they have access to the best medical care, but not everybody does. And that to me is probably both an economic privilege as well as a a white male and political privilege. But those parts of it make me pretty angry. Mm. Thank you, Peggy. Janice, you want to add? Yeah, I, I definitely agree with both of Peggy's points. The naming of this as the Chinese virus is just a dog whistle, which is generally what he does. But the other part for me is, as an African-American, I think I'm probably feeling it more through a socioeconomic lens than a racial lens. I live in a city, you know, I live in Baltimore, and Baltimore is predominantly African-American, very, very, very challenged right now economically. And there are a lot of people that look like me that their kids are not going to have food. They may have small businesses that now they have to shut down. I just feel like it's so much harder to come back from that when you're a person of color. The bounce back is really tough. The margins tend to be pretty thin. Even if you're living in a decent house and have a decent job, the margins tend to be pretty thin. A lot of the houses of worship in our community depend on people showing up and giving. The barbershops and the beauty salons and the restaurants, all of these kind of cash and carry places, you know, this is how people make a living. And so there's an emptiness because I can't connect with those parts of my community for I don't know how long. And when, whenever we get through this, whatever this turns out to be in the end, are those folks even going to be around? That causes me pain to see people that I know and love saying, I got to shut it down. And it's for all the good kind of health reasons, but it goes back to that emotional piece and the financial piece. And I just, I just worry about them being able to come back. That's kind of what comes up for me from a race perspective. And one thing I'll add from a gender perspective, the health of the family is generally the responsibility of the woman in the family. I've got my mother here. I've got two daughters. You know, so all of that is kind of going on. Like, is everybody okay? That's generally been, I'll say in my family. I'm not going to say for all families. That's something else. I'm always kind of on edge. Somebody just sneezed. What does that mean? (laughs) So it's a pretty dicey position to be in right now. 
I just want to acknowledge you talked about pain. You talked about emptiness, not feeling connected. But it's also, I felt you acknowledge a, a sense of permanence in terms of what this will change. That when the dust clears and everything goes back without having to shelter in place, that some of those places no longer going to be there. That's what I'm hearing from you. Yeah. A permanence. Yes. Yes. This is not a snowstorm. This is a long time. If I can, this is Bill again, I want to weigh in because I asked my two colleagues of color, women colleagues of color around this issue of race, and I just want to acknowledge that I have a race, and I want to speak to the impact that I'm feeling for me, giving my acculturation of my upbringing, both as a part of my whiteness and my maleness, and what I continue to marvel at and sometimes be frustrated about with myself is the way in which I've been taught to live in a world that basically says it's only a flesh wound if I can dream it, I can do it. And there's tremendous upsides of that. Go after your dreams. I love that tenacity piece of me. The it's only a flesh wound piece can be, I'm noticing now is my own sort of judgment that I place on myself and particularly others when they are expressing anxiousness and fear, not just my colleagues of color, but everybody, including other white men. And so the other day I'm in a rural environment. I've got a place that I was at and one of my neighbors, who I actually was brand new, he came down the road in his car. I was out walking with my partner. He rolled his window down, introduced himself. And I instinctively just put my hand out and we shook hands. Meanwhile, Pam, my partner of 30 years, is saying, what the hell are you doing? And I'm like, what do you mean? And I found myself, again, practicing what I talked about earlier, where I just sort of discount the sort of enormity of what's happening right now and my imperviousness to how it might personally impact me physically, emotionally, whatever. I said, some of my work right now is to really look at how that long-held multiple decade conditioning is really impacting whether I believe people's reality, whether how I'm judging other people, including myself, and the way in which I normally just instinctively put myself in harm's way thinking that that's what real men do. And it's hard to talk about that because it's been so deeply ingrained in me that a part of my identity is really tied to that. And again, one of the silver linings for this, at least right now for me, is to look at my own fragility and humanness of that. I It's one of the things, Peggy, as you said, my connectedness to the two of you and Michael and other people on this planet, regardless of our skin color, our nationality, our religion, our language, et cetera, we are really deeply connected. There's a way in which I've, I've learned to sort of either minimize that or just to blow it off or to shrug it off like it's only a flesh wound. Mm-hmm. Uh, Michael, I just want to jump in with one thing because a number of things that hit me about what Bill just said, but one of the things, and, and I think realizing that this thing doesn't care who you are, what your color is, how much money you've got, your position in life. Nobody is immune to this. I think some of the blustering around this is, the, and not you, Bill, not you particularly, but other white men, especially those in positions of power in the government, is probably a fear about my whiteness and my maleness can't save me from this. It can save me from a lot of things, but it can't save me from this. As a black person, I've grown up recognizing that there's a whole lot that my skin color won't save me from. So some of this is like, yeah, right. But I just, I was really interesting what you said. It really hit me. Like I'm used to brushing this stuff off 
And this thing is not, this thing does not care who you are and the habits that we have that we have to think about very differently now that we have to break to keep ourselves and others safe. I agree. I think I carry both of those, Janice, as a, this is Michael as a white male. I think I've been partially oblivious to some of the regular things that you and Peggy have to be concerned about every day. I mean, the, nobody's calling anything a white male virus. I don't have a personal effect to it being called a Chinese virus. Like Peggy has Asian people are being attacked or bullied right now in the country around that. And so there's a difference in how it plays out. And yet I think that I, I can sort of be proud of how I handle my ambiguity and turbulence around this, but also it's a reflection of my part of my whiteness, but also my economic privilege of I'm not going to lose my job. I'm not going to lose everything that I own. I'm still going to have a certain standard of life. And that's not true of everybody. And on the other hand, I, I agree with what you're saying. It's like, this is permeating me and my family. And I, I worry about that in a way where I typically don't have to worry about stuff as much as others do. Other thoughts, reactions, appreciating the conversation, appreciating all three of your personal sharing. When I was listening to you, Bill and Janice analyzing it, I was going, okay, well then what are you learning? <laughs> What are white men learning? How do you bring it down to your heart? How do you show some of the vulnerability at a heart level? Because uh, I, I think, I think in a larger context, I think that's what what's being called for. Who knows why this is happening? But I think one of the net impacts of it could be closer ties, greater communication, more interdependency, an ability to move closer to one another and to share feelings and thoughts. And so I guess that's what ran through my head. So you and Michael are white men and what's coming up for you? I'm struck, Peggy, by a number of things that you just said. And again, thanks as always for that pushing me a little bit in terms of what I, my learning is. And I, I went to the same word, vulnerability. It's reminding me about my need to show that I need other people in my life. And particularly, I think what I was noticing, and I hadn't thought about this until you just mentioned it now from these two calls that were wonderful with great people, some that I know and other people I just met. The fact that I was the only white guy on this thing, I was lonely for connection with my group and around sharing that sense of vulnerability, which, again, I have been taught and rewarded to hold the steel curtain up and don't let other white men see behind it. And I think for me, as terrifying and uncertain as this pandemic is at the physical health standpoint, the global economy standpoint, the opportunity there is to lean into our connectedness across difference, but also within perceived sameness. And that's a great reminder and something that I get, I, I'm energized by it. It's a reminder of my work of the last 30 years, and, and it also shows that the work is far from done and never will be, actually. I appreciate that because I think, Bill, it is an opportunity for white men to say, I'm worried and I'm scared. And if you can open the door for other white men to say that, I think it's, it's healthy and it's needed. I agree, Peggy. And it's, I think it's about us as men, as well as as white men, modeling that vulnerability, modeling the head-heart connection, showing that vulnerability is a strength as opposed to seen as a weakness, especially in times like this. 
as I listened to some of the questions that were generated by your our clients yesterday on that first webinar, a lot of it was about how do I create connection? How do I create community? How do I help people feel heard, seen? And so in times of ambiguity and turbulence, I think the need for all that connection goes up not down. And they want most of our, our humanness and some aspects of the white male culture, the rugged individualism, don't ask for help. Don't show weakness. Stay in my head, disconnect from my heart, just focus on doing, suck it up. That doesn't serve me to provide these needs, not only to others, but to myself and to Bill or each other as white men. So the opportunity I think is for us is to use this leveraging this ambiguity and turbulence time as a chance to break out of that cultural box and claim some of these other skills in a way that owns more of my humanity. Because I ultimately do have fears. I ultimately do have anxiety, just pure nervousness, anxiety about what's never happened in our country before and the possibility of being in full down lockdown soon and all kinds of stuff. It's like anybody should be afraid around that. I want to model for my daughters as well as my brothers and to get out what this is like at a heart level so that we can actually support it and deal with it with each other. I appreciate that, Michael, because if not now, when? If not this, then what what would we need to have happen for us to break through and integrate head and heart? Any male listening to this or anybody listening to this, are are you resorting back to your strengths that may be overused, some of those tendencies to just suck it up, or are you actually stretching into some of these other possibilities in ways that, just like I know a lot of men who go through health crises, heart attacks, or other kinds of things, and sometimes that breaks them into a whole nother layer of showing up emotionally. Well, this is kind of happening at a country level or a systems level now, too. So we can use that same crisis as an opportunity to free ourselves into more connectedness. Michael, something you just said triggered back to Janice, something you said a little while ago around you noticing about your own family, your role as the matriarch to take care of people. And I said, for me, the other side of that is my role as a man in my life and now as a business owner about the reluctance I have of sharing my vulnerability at times of crisis. And I know I've got an internal little battle going on in my own heart and head right now around as a business owner about being really afraid of what it means to sort of close my company down for a while and putting people out on the streets, taking jobs away, et cetera. This image of having to show a a stiff upper lip, not show any sort of sadness or anxiety or fear around that. And that I'm just recognizing the toll that that has taken on on me. And I'm not saying that I'm the only person that, that deals with this because I know lots of other people do. I have the privilege of being shielded from a lot of this. But for me to acknowledge that it's still there, I, I rarely do that. Again, silver lining of this for me, and it might feel a little trivial to someone listening to this, like, really? You're just coming to that conclusion? Oh, boy, that's really uplifting. But for me, no, it really it's about, it's about the common humanity, and it's about what we share in common with one another. My mother-in-law just passed away a few days ago at at the young age of 96. And that reminder of that, as humans, we all share that exiting of the planet together. We share other things as well. That's a great reminder. I'm thinking about a retreat we did, I don't know, six, five, four months ago. And 
one of the things we wanted to do was to connect more with each other as two men and share feelings. And I don't think we've done that. I haven't done my part of reaching out to you at that level and realizing what Peggy's suggesting here is now is a better time than ever for me to do that with you more regularly. So I want to commit to that right now. I'm listening to this and all I kept hearing is the word connection, connection, connection at a time when we cannot physically be in rooms with each other. Being really intentional, like the example you gave, Peggy, about somebody doing online coffees and lunches, there's an intentionality around that that I think we're all going to have to think about. I'm terrible with keeping up with people in my personal life. And I really feel like I've talked to people more in the last two weeks. We just keep chugging along and moving until something stops us. I think as leaders and companies, Pastors and churches are thinking about this. I mean, how, how can we intentionally stay connected and show that vulnerability that, Michael, you and Bill are talking about, the humanness with the folks that work for you, because that's what they really need now. And I forget what skill it is where I should have looked, but just being able to say, I don't know. I don't know. I don't have all of the answers. That kind of honesty and vulnerability can really present kind of the human side of it and not thinking, okay, I have to have a direct answer for everything because in some cases we just don't have them. And it's okay to say that. Yep. And I think of this behavior that we have listed under ambiguity and turbulence, which is I resist the urge to oversimplify situations. So I work through complexity with an open mind, which is allowing myself to just sit with confusion and complexity rather than trying to get rid of it. Here it is in front of us today. I really resonate with what you're talking about on connection, Janice. What other ideas do any of you have around leaders listening to this and how they might connect more with people who really could use it that work with them? I don't know if people can send out a a voice message versus an email message. But I think hearing people's voices and hearing the concern in their voices is something that could be done. Or maybe just a large town hall visually would be helpful for people just to say, how are you doing? How are things going? One of my suggestions. I was just going to say having real frequent, just touch base kind of conversations not a big agenda. It's kind of the equivalent of I'm seeing you in the coffee room in the office and just catching up and keeping it casual and less formal. Whatever work is getting done, the work's got to get done. But there's also this, I think the piece of, I ran into so-and-so in the hallway and we chatted for five minutes. So thinking of how to do that, especially when everybody is, is in separate places. And having it be frequent and short, but it's kind of the equivalent of, I'm thinking of you right now, so that people know that you still value them, even in this time of disconnection. Again, these two webinars that I was involved with our clients this morning and yesterday, and I ended it with seven tips for full partners in times of uncertainty. And as I'm reading down this list, which I'll share in just a second, and hearing us talk We've been practicing a number of these as we've been chatting with each other and showing us. First one for me, which is always, these I never do good enough. 
And it's about, first of all, slowing down in order to go faster. And the slowing down, I mean, the thing right now, one of the gifts of what's happening with this pandemic of really being shelter in place is it's forcing me, who is a perpetual kinesthetic, go, 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 to sort of be in one place, which helps me to slow down. Then related to that, when I slow down, I get to start to notice, secondly, what am I feeling? Giving myself space to express those feelings, whatever they may be. And when I'm feeling anxiousness or confusion or discomfort, lots of times those feelings, which for me, based on how I grew up, are foreign and they they make me even more scared, it sometimes forces me to not be present or I want to continue to speed back up. So again, when I'm noticing my discomfort, my I don't know what to do now, my I'm scared, that for me, it's a signal about how do I be more present with myself and the others in my company. And then the third one, which we talk about in our practice all the time, is what's the mutual self-interest in any effort to affect change? And I can't just focus on what's in it for you. I've got to focus on what's in it for me. And I have to, those have to be aligned with each other. We got to find that common intersection. And then I think the other thing related to that around the fear and anxiety piece is that for me, when that gets really prevalent or my scarcity, and Peggy, you and I have chatted about this many times, versus abundance, if the scarcity or the fear of the anxiousness becomes the overriding guiding North Star for me, quote unquote, that is also another distraction for me to be present. So it's not about not feeling those things, but it's also not getting lost in the nervousness of, oh my goodness, I don't know what's going on. What should I do? Then the other last two ones is then it reminds me to seek out and continue to validate others' perspectives fully, particularly when I don't understand them and or don't agree with them and not to see our difference of perspective as somehow who's right, that we're both right. That that abundance of thinking actually helps me and you and us to act in more unison and alignment with each other. And then finally, doing all that and applying rigor and perseverance, how to stay in it long term, because this is not going anywhere. And as we've talked about, none of us control when we come out of this. It's just going to, it's going to be what it's going to be. Great. My own tip would be particularly for white men, but probably for everybody is recognize that people live in whole different worlds than myself. Back to what you talked about earlier, Janice, and other socioeconomic or cross-race, Peggy, Janice, your examples is that if I'm connecting with people and I'm saying, how are you doing? And they're really not doing well, or they're sharing. It might be because they live and deal with things in their world that I don't have to deal with or think about, and I never even realized people have to deal with. And so to be open to that and not assume sameness is a gift for me because it broadens my viewpoint. And so in these turbulent times, I want to be empathetic and realize I'm getting a gift if I'm hearing what other people's worlds are like. Any other closing thoughts, tips, or Peggy or Janice? I really have appreciated this conversation because I think every conversation like this brings us closer together and then creates community. So it's really, to me, the opportunity to create community and new communities and the circles of communities and people by just big and small things. So this is a big thing for me. I appreciate the opportunity to talk with all of you about ambiguity and turbulence in the, in the face of the coronavirus. I would echo that. I really appreciated the conversation and the different perspectives and just the acknowledgement that we're all in that space. Sometimes it's good to have company. (laughs) So I wish we weren't, but we are. And also hopefully 
whoever hears this focuses not only on the content of what has been said, but just the sharing and having it come from a place of heart space, coming from a, a personal place as opposed to the headspace that we tend to go to. So I, I, I really found that valuable. Yeah, I'm noticing I feel as an impact of this conversation, I feel closer to all three of you. And I'm appreciating that in these times. And I, I appreciate, Bill, too, you bringing our colleagues of color into the conversation around the difference across race and gender. And as a white guy, thank you for bringing that, inviting that in the conversation early on. So we had some time for that. Well, I don't mean to sidetrack this. Thank you, Michael. But again, I'm really struck by, I get praised for doing something that my colleagues of color, Peggy and Denise, who I've watched gallantly for years, do the very same thing. And I'm guessing you don't often get praised when you do what Michael just called me out on, do you? I'm just checking. Yeah, I would agree, Bill. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We just kind of we just kind of show up in it. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah, one of the things I just I love about all three of you is our ability to be real and present with each other. Every conversation I have with you, one on one or in small groups like this, I come away a different person, and I am forever <laughs> grateful for that in my ongoing learning journey. It's one of the things I love and pinch myself at least daily, if not more about the privilege of doing this work because the work is as much about me as it is for the clients that trust us to guide them on inclusion and leading. And I would say, as Janice said, that this, the coronavirus doesn't have a specific entity. It is across the board. And if we can't get real now, I mean, we don't know who's going to come down with this. We don't know what's going to happen. And so if we lived with that idea on our shoulder, then how real could we really get? How really intense and personal can we become? And how much connection can we create? And I think this is the time. This is the time for me to do that. Yeah, and we don't know how long this is going to play out and how worse it's going to get. Compared to a few months from now, this might seem easy at this point, too, so... Thank you very much, Peggy, Janice, and Bill, for the three of you for sharing your heads and your hearts in this space. Thank you all for listening to this episode of Insider Outsider Podcast. Hopefully there's some insights for you here on this skill of leveraging ambiguity and turbulence, which is one of the eight critical leadership skills at WMFDP. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Insider Outsider Podcast, where we have courageous conversations with business leaders about what it means to be an insider or an outsider in their organizations. We at WFTP and FTP Global specialize in getting insiders to understand their unique responsibility to engage other insiders as well as outsiders in building inclusive teams and organizations. Our work takes us around the globe, transforming people and companies towards a more inclusive world. For the show notes about this podcast and more about the work of WMFDP and FTP Global, visit wmfdp.com slash podcast.